watchers in the fourth dimension. I am Magnus Grill. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And the beasts of darkness. I've made them larger and more savage than lions. And this episode, we're off to the Victorian era, where the talons of Wang Chiang will shred our flesh. <laughs> but before we get into that, Julie's going to take a quick look at the mail. Perfect. All right, I believe most of our mail, if not all, is going to be from the Deadly Assassin. Our dear friend, Ellen Seiler, says, This one has always been a bit problematic for me. I didn't like it for the longest time. Over time, though, I came to appreciate the reinvention and the fleshing out of the Time Lord Society and the political machinations. The portrayal of the Master willing himself to exist beyond the point of death seems a retread of what we already saw with Omega, Minus the singularity and the jelly monsters. But by gosh, part three bores the pants off me. <laughs> I, I get it. Yes, Doctor Who has the flexibility to be anything it wants to be, but I simply didn't enjoy it. Overall, the story does add a great deal of new context to the Time Lords and gives us new insights to their society. And those parts are fascinating. So for that, I'll award it 6.5 pretentious callers out of 10. <laughs> Good metric there. Now, Chris Nelson says, to me, the most important episode of Doctor Who. We agree to disagree. Written by <laughs> one of, if not the best, classic Who writers, Robert Holmes. It is almost as if the entirety of Who before was a prologue, and this is where it started. All right, that's getting a little bit much for me because that I don't like to think that way of Hartnell. The epic serial scroll of the beginning, the first real glimpse of Gallifrey and its culture, despite the war games, Terror of the Autons, the Three Doctors, etc. This is where the mythology of the show would be established that would cast a long shadow even into the modern era. Rassilon, the 12 generation limit, the Matrix, Time Lord culture and society. It revitalized the Master, had a brilliant episode with a surreal environment. Was the Matrix a quarter of a century before the Wachowskis and was Gothic before Goth? Witness the character actually named Goth. <laughs> this serial had it all. First Doctor with no companion serial, and boy, did Tom really show that he could handle it. This serial has everything. <laughs> I kind of see what he's saying in that it does change the mythology of the show quite significantly, but whether or not it makes everything that came before seem like a prologue, I think I would disagree with that. I thought we had the discussion that that serial was very loaded down with fan wank. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that there's some more mail on that one all right next mark dunston great story indeed episode three what a scorcher tom baker is great on his own but i do miss sarah jane but there is better to come hello leela <laughs> <laughs> agree a hundred percent agree all right next our friends karen james evans i like it a lot but i did also manage to fall asleep the other week watching it not in part three, as you might expect, but about 10 minutes into part four. I blame being tired from work. The dialogue sparkles, and it's a good outing for Dudley this week. Agreed. The Matrix sequence is a bit Marmite, and I think my thoughts on it depend on my mood. 7.5 out of 10, plagues of rats causing subsidence. All right, next. Nick Rutherford says, 
Wow, this one divided opinion among you three, just like it did back in 1976 when Vans voted it the least favorite of the season. I'd say it's my top half of the season. Love the exchange between Runcible and the Doctor. Have you had a facelift? Several so far. What's not to like? What's really interesting is he talks about it dividing opinion amongst us, a dividing opinion at the time, and listening to these comments so far, it's dividing opinion among our listeners. Yes. Agreed. All right, now, our good friend, Arl Gray. Could it be more appropriate that a skeletal master is teaming up with someone named Goth? Because of my own Goth tendency, in the sense of liking spooky and death-related things, not scheming to seize power in the hierarchical elite society, (laughs) I'm a big fan of the crispy master. Nevertheless, I'm definitely in the camp that thinks this story is pretty overrated. It's hard for me to invest in intrigue amongst a bunch of stuffy, old, barobed white guys. And the much ballyhooed Matrix sequence, as you all note, isn't so much the surreal fever dream we all want, and many even remember, as much as mostly running around outside. <laughs> Facts. There will be some properly psychedelic weirdness coming up in a season 15 story, which is terribly silly, but also utterly delightful. I am looking forward to that. Yeah, you sold me on that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, from J.M. Casey, here it comes, Riley. While it's definitely easy to call the story fan wank, I do think it was less so when it was written. I mean, the Time Lords are basically reconstructed and deconstructed here, and Holmes pretty much finished their story as far as I'm concerned. I don't generally like stories set on Gallifrey very much, but I mostly enjoyed this one, and it's precisely because Holmes took the trouble to finally demystify the Time Lords. We could have done with them after this completely, and I think I would have been perfectly happy. All the iconography this story mentions comes up later in the series, but it's for the most part invented in this story, except for the Eye of Harmony, which was also mentioned in The Three Doctors. Not even named, if I remember right. So is it really fan wank or just Holmes coming up with a new set of traditions for the Doctor's people? One man's fan wank is another man's treasure, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it. There's one of the argument that way. All right, Austin Patterson says, I love the way Gallifrey is presented in the war games as this godlike society that's all-knowing and all-powerful and yet also all-boring and all-dicks. Person <laughs> after my own heart, man, I'm with you. In future classic stories, it becomes more like another Joe Schmo planet and it loses its mystery. And I think that while this story doesn't have that, it begins Doctor Who down that road of exploring Gallifrey way too much. That I yeah. agree with 100%. Yeah, fair. I completely agree. All right, Beardo Beatnik says, Love, love, Bernard Horsfall. We'll watch any Who with him in it, but this story is so lame. <laughs> <laughs> Five and a half slashes of Rassilon. Also, Anthony seems more snarky than usual. Maybe I was just in a <laughs> snarky mood that night, or maybe I've taken on the role of the snarky one from Don. Not sure which. We'll see. We'll see. So Centrine Dragonfly, aka Cat, says, have to agree on the fan wankiness of this story. This also starts the trend of almost everything important on Gallifrey being of Rassilon. Still waiting for the golden <laughs> loo of Rassilon. You know they've got one somewhere. <laughs> I love that one. All right, now a good friend, Adam Brown, says, I have to admit, this is one of the first shows I remember as a kid that terrified me. Runcible seems a perfect parody of David Frost. sorry i got that yeah that's good i see that that's good anthony has an advantage as do uk watchers the mocking of uk parliament is hilarious 
He even carries a black rod. Bless the BBC for finally putting all the shows on iPlayer. I've delighted in revisiting your whole output whilst being able to watch along. Thank you for continuing. I would have understood you stopping, but I'm happier you have than is probably healthy. Keep on reversing <laughs> the polarity. <laughs> Glad someone loves us. And last but not least, David Patty says, I think there's something I need to bring to your attention. I noted that a new podcast had dropped and thought, I've got some things to do. I'll listen to it in the car. So I loaded it up and everything was fine until near the end. And then Riley said, fan wake sandwich. At that <laughs> point, I nearly lost control of the car. Managed to control myself, but the phrase has been making me laugh off and on all day. So some kind of warning for those driving or operating machinery. Enjoyed this one, too. The three of you work together. And although I'd rate Deadly Assassin a lot higher, I like the discussion. <laughs> and I'm glad you made it safe, David. And that is the mail. Well, I'm sure it won't be too long before we're faced with another fan wank sandwich. <laughs> Do we need to put a warning on our episodes? Don't listen while driving. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, moving on to the talons of Wang Chiang and heading behind the scenes. Robert Stewart Banks, the writer, had really impressed producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes with his work during season 13, in which he wrote both The Terror of the Zygons and The Seeds of Doom. The latter of these was delivered on a highly compressed timeline, leading to the production team wanting to invite him back for this season, season 14. Stewart wanted to avoid an outer space setting and suggested a storyline which took place in an isolated village in which the residents had come under a malign influence. In his initial storyline, he took influence from Village of the Damned and the Stepford Wives. Holmes suggested to him that the villain of the story should be a time traveller from the future. At the beginning of May 1976, Stewart was commissioned to provide a storyline for a six-part serial called The Foe from the Future, intended to serve as the season 14 finale. Originally, the production team thought that a new companion might debut in this story. However, by the time the commission came along, the production team was now planning to retain Leela through to the end of the season. With that, she was included in Stewart's outline. One month later, Stewart submitted his storyline, and Robert Holmes, having completed work on his own Doctor Who script, The Deadly Assassin, left on a family vacation, comfortable that the rest of the season was proceeding well towards production. Unfortunately, while they were away, Holmes's wife fell ill, which unexpectedly prolonged their time abroad while she recovered. When Holmes returned to England in August, Stewart had left him a message explaining that he had taken a new position as script editor on a Thames television programme called Rooms, and as such he would be unable to write the scripts for The Foe from the Future. And it was back to the drawing board for Doctor Who's season 14 finale. With no time to find a replacement, it was agreed that Holmes would write the season finale himself, and he was formally commissioned on November the 12th, with the story initially titled The Talons of Greel. With no certainty that either of them would remain on the show, Hinchcliffe encouraged Holmes to write whatever he wanted. The only idea he vetoed was the suggestion that the villain of the piece might be revealed as the master. With nearly free reign, Holmes transplanted Stuart's basic ideas to Victorian London, a setting he had been keen to use ever since he was writing The Deadly Assassin, when he considered using it as a backdrop to the climax of that story. Holmes drew inspiration from Jack the Ripper, as well as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, Gaston LaRue's 1910 novel The Phantom of the Opera, the 1945 horror film Dead of Night, Wilkie Collins's The Moonstone, and Sax Roma's Fu Manchu Canon. Quite the selection there. 
During the scripting process, Holmes consulted closely with director David Maloney, allowing Holmes to structure the plot so that location filming would feature more prominently towards the start of the story, enabling Maloney to start his planning and pre-production early. We have of course seen Maloney many times before. This is actually his eighth and final time in the director's chair for Doctor Who, and he started that journey with season six's The Mind Robber, and we most recently saw his work on The Deadly Assassin earlier in the season. By the start of November 1976, the BBC confirmed that Hinchcliffe was moving off of Doctor Who to be replaced by Graham Williams. This meant that Hinchcliffe would face few consequences for overspending, and so he decided to open up the show's budget on the talents of Wang Chiang, allowing for significant location filming, including night shoots. As production ramped up, the remainder of the key production staff included the return of Dudders, because of course... Krista Oily-John continued as production manager, and this was set to be his last outing in that role on the show, and he was meant to do the entire serial. However, Hinchcliffe's indifference to the budget led to a considerable amount of stress for our outgoing production unit manager, who was charged with keeping an eye on the budget. <laughs> and as a result, he was replaced for the final leg of the schedule by John Nathan Turner, who was already due to take over the position in season 15. And that's a name we're going to hear a lot of going forward. Joining them in the behind-the-scenes work, John Bloomfield returns to provide costumes, having previously worked on The Face of Evil earlier in the season, and this would be his last time working on the show. Another valedictory outing came from designer Roger Murray Leach, returning for the seventh time, and we first saw him and his work on season 12's The Ark in Space, and most recently saw his contributions on The Deadly Assassin earlier in the season. Murray Leach was put to good use as during location filming in Wapping, residents had been asked to avoid parking their cars on the street, but cast and crew arrived to find a resident's Porsche in full view. <laughs> Thinking on his feet, our designer covered the car in a tarp and draped it in hay. And additionally during the shoot, a little funny anecdote that I read and quite liked, so I thought it was worthy of mention. The team was approached by local police officers who asked to borrow a prop corpse in order to prank one of their junior colleagues. <laughs> I always liked that story. Once production on the serial was completed, the show's 14th production block came to an end, and with it, Hinchcliffe's time on the show. Robert Holmes will remain for the first half of season 15 to help Graham Williams with his transition into the producer's chair. On broadcast, The Talents of Wang Chiang was pushed back by an additional 10 minutes, airing at 6.30pm, starting on February the 26th, 1977. Real quick, I haven't mentioned it before, but the way Brits do television is very odd to me. Just <laughs> randomly pushing things back by 10 minutes, very strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, scheduling's pretty fluid. Keeps Mary Whitehouse happy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the story concluded on April the 2nd, wrapping up the show's 14th season. During the hiatus, Tom Baker suggested that the next season of the show might be his last, and that would not be the last time he would make that suggestion. Kind of turns into a running theme with Tom. And that takes us into this episode's short summary, and because you haven't heard enough of my voice, it's with me this time around. In this story, we travel to the 19th century to face a foe from the 51st. How very Stephen Moffat. Robert Holmes gives us one of his best double acts of all time in Jago and Lightfoot, who helped the Doctor and his noble savage Leela defeat Magnus Greel, the war criminal deformed by his own time travel experiments. Throw in a significant amount of racial insensitivity about the Chinese, <laughs> put a white man in yellow face, and there you have the talents of Wang Chiang. Oh, also a giant rat. And did I mention that this is somehow considered one of the best Doctor Who stories of all time? <laughs> <laughs> 
I see what you did there. <laughs> Let's talk some racist shit. <laughs> yeah, basically. But hey, before we dive into that, I've been dying to do this for a while now since I've seen this on our lineup. Just want to say, everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Wayne Chiang tonight. There we go. <laughs> nice. So yes, the trigger warning at the beginning of BritBox. And when did that come about? When did they place that? How many years ago? I have no idea because I watched on Blu-ray where there is not uh, a trigger warning. Well, has there been a push to completely remove it? Because lately, certain television shows that were not as racially insensitive of this, they've had on streaming have had their episodes pulled. Are you thinking community? I am thinking community, yes. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen anything demanding that it's pulled. I mean, my personal viewpoint is having the warning is the right mm -hmm. way to go. I think yes, it's cultural vandalism and whitewashing of history to remove it and make mm -hmm. it inaccessible. I think we should show what was acceptable at the time and say, look, this was acceptable at the time. It might not be by modern attitudes. I learn from one's mistakes, right? Yeah, if you just erase it, then you won't learn from what you did in the past. Correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's history. It, mm -hmm. I think of archive television like this as a cultural artifact, and this tells us a lot about the time. And the fact that this depiction actually wasn't considered horrendous or even questionable until, I don't know, five, six years ago, I think says a lot about society as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think in a couple other things too, outside of some of the whitewashing, and, and it looks like we're putting a lot of this here at the beginning, guys, before we get into the plot, is I think some of it is pretty culturally appropriate for the Victorian era as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think there was great love between the East and the West, we'll call it, at that time anyway. So it wasn't even very surprising to me from that aspect as well. Obviously, the yellow face is problematic for the time period, but I sometimes also like to think of what time period they're trying to portray and if they portrayed that correctly as well. Yeah, I think anyone who's Victorian being a little bit racist, while it's uncomfortable, it's not inappropriate. To your point, Julie, I do think putting John Bennett in yellow face and having him speak in an over-the-top clipped Chinese accent is pretty that's bad. That's the worst part. That's the worst that's, part. Yeah, that's the worst and part. There are elements where the doctor says a few things that are a little questionable as well, like when he refers to the Chinese gang that attacks him as little men. That's, I think, skirting the line. Because mm -hmm. I think the doctor, and to an extent Leela, although she is less educated, but they should be above that. Right. And also, she wouldn't even know the concept of what a Chinese person is. Right. Because that's not her culture. So Exactly. All right. So should we actually dive into the story? We've kind of hit on the elephant in the room, and I'm sure it will come up as we're talking about it. Right. I agreed. And I'm glad we're getting it done now because I think there's a lot of fun things that are going on in this serial, a lot of fun things. And so, yeah, let's go with it. You mentioned Dead of Night being a reference that was called upon. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that until you just said it. And then I was thinking, what are they talking about? It's Mr. Sin. Yeah. The ventriloquist <sighs> dummy, that's straight from Dead of Night. And- Mr. Sin, oh God, he's going to give me nightmares. He is very unsettling. Yes, yes, he is. Let's talk about the opening to this because we open on the theater and everything about that tells us this is Victorian England. You look at the audience, you look at the type of shows, it sets the scene really well. You can see where the money <laughs> that they were overspending went on this serial. I can see the concerns. 
because it looks good. It looks period appropriate. (laughs) And it's from there where we very quickly introduced to Chang, who obviously we've already mentioned is John Bennett in Yellowface and Mr. Sin, which we soon see nod on its own, which is creepy as hell. (laughs) Obviously, I I don't think I have the background of that particular film you're talking about, but he's one of the creepiest puppets. You know, obviously they've used it time and time again. Right in a lot of these type of things, the Goosebump series has done stuff with it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer has done some stuff with it. And this one is probably one of the creepier versions I've seen. Yeah. And what's great about it is that before with these type of ventriloquist doll come to life stories, it's usually just a doll. But we learn a bit later that there's something underneath that outfit in that mask that's probably even more disturbing than just being a reanimated doll. (laughs) My only problem that I had with him was he would go around killing people, but he didn't move very fast. And I was very confused of how he killed people. He snuck up on him because he's so small. They didn't see him coming. He's such a rambunctious little murderous little person. Made me miss Bach from the demons. But see, (laughs) Bach was so much more fun and he seemed to have a little more cheerfulness in his... He's more mischievous. Violence. Yeah, more mischievous. <laughs> and I like that. Sin is just straight up like sociopathic murderer. He gets a lot of enjoyment out of his murder. I do want to give a shout out to Deep Roy, who played Mr. Sin, who we see in a ton of other things. He's notable as the Oompa Loompas in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the uh, Tim Burton oh, really? version. Yeah. Oh, wow. He's uh, Scotty's little helper oh, in right. the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. And he's been in a ton of pretty cool stuff. He's been in a couple of Star Wars movies, The NeverEnding Story. Oh, wow. He actually did a lot with Tim Burton. He was also in Planet of the Apes, Big Fish, and Corpse Bride. So he goes on to do some fairly big things after this. That's a resume. Yeah. All right. But let's get to the Doctor and Leela making an appearance. And for once, we really truly have the Doctor telling Leela, but you can't wear what you're wearing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I love their costumes in this story. I mean, it's really on the nose that we're going Sherlock Holmes here. Oh, Mm -hmm. it's a hit you in the head type of Sherlock Holmes things. I love her first outfit because the doctor was smart enough to be like, well, she probably won't want to wear a dress. Right. And that I really appreciated. And I love the interactions. I love how Leela says, this is a big village. What's the name of the tribe here? And the doctor responds with such glee, Cockneys. (laughs) It's just, it's wonderful. Yeah, the repartee in this is quite good. So quickly they clicked, I feel like, in this story especially. And it's the Robert Holmes dialogue. Yeah. It's amazing to think that Louise Jameson thought about leaving Doctor Who at the end of this. Her contract was going to come to an end. Graham Williams came to her and said, hey, I would like to keep you on. And she basically said, well, there are two things. Firstly, you're making me wear these incredibly uncomfortable brown contact lenses. I don't want to do that. Secondly, Tom hates me. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, all right, I'll get rid of the contact lenses. And she agreed to stay on. One out of two ain't bad, right? Yeah. (laughs) But given how he basically didn't like the character and kind of took that out on her, I think it's really impressive that that doesn't really show on screen. Yeah, it does appear that they have a good chemistry on screen, which is, I guess, a testament of their acting. Yeah. But speaking of the Holmesian dialogue... Can we talk a little bit about Mr. Jago? Oh, yes. Wow. The lines, the words, the variety of words. He's very verbose. I don't think he knows what most of those words mean. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And 
I have to say, I am actually not a fan of Jago oh. until he gets paired up with Professor Lightfoot. Then wow. I adore him. But before that, I can't handle it. It's too much. It's too over the top for me. It's such a classic character, though, right? Like the stage mm-hmm. or the theater owner kind of got a little bit of a carnival barker thing about him. I just love his back and forth with the stage hand about going down the stairs and accusing him of being drunk about the things that he saw downstairs. And he said, it's not a drop. Well, maybe it's time you started. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I almost think his big personality, Julie, that you struggle with is almost like intense method acting. He has to be this larger than life personality on stage. And he's become that off the stage as well. To me, it kind of works. Well, I mean, he's a promoter off the stage, too. I mean, he's a walking advertisement. He has to be for his business. Yeah. He just annoyed me to no end. And I get that that's part of what he's supposed to do. But now, are we going to talk about, like, we're, we're up against these women. They're disappearing. They're disappearing. And they tend to be a part of the show. At least in the beginning. At yeah. the beginning. Well, I mean, as audience members that are used for little tricks. And I don't know, I would definitely see them perform. Like, I'm waiting to see Mr. Sin headline at the Bellagio. doing this like right after Siegfried and Roy right that would be wonderful and I thought the magic they showed on screen was good and appropriate for the time period so a husband of one of these women has disappeared and he accuses the mesmerism from the show from the night before and it's quite kind of sad because you really do feel for him like his wife is missing and no one seems to care everyone's just kind of like yeah man 19th century London women are disappearing all the time (laughs) One of the frustrating things I find in this serial as well, and I think we did actually get one woman with a speaking role in this episode, but we did like the female yokel. (laughs) Would you consider her? Okay, yes. We don't get a country yokel, but we do get an old crone. So do we want to change it up? (laughs) Is this going to be the new thing? And also while we're on it, I'm sorry to interrupt, but while we're on it, did we really need the extreme close-up of her gleefully cheering on the place as they drag the body out of the <laughs> river? And that just seemed a bit unnecessary. She was absurdly cockney. Yes. Every other sentence was just some sort of expression or slang. Yeah. <laughs> I could definitely see her in a Pertwee era story. Oh, yeah. But what I was alluding to is the fact that all these women are disappearing and we only get two women who speak any lines is insane to me. Well, they will disappear before they can speak. (laughs) No, they just have them laying on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the victims, even though they have not been killed, they're just knocked out. Like, they just lay there. Why even cast somebody? I mean, I guess because a body double or a mannequin would look too fake. But you know what? That's still two speaking wind parts in the entire story. That's still precisely two more (laughs) than the Mask of Mandragora, the Deadly Assassin, or the Face of Evil. (laughs) Yep. So. Oh, boy. Anyway, so then we hear about the, shall I say it, rodents of unusual size. Oh, if you weren't, I was going to say it. (laughs) And they try to cover up the stabbing with a rat. (laughs) Well, great. As you do. But this kind of leads us into the scene at the police station. Which one? It seems like we keep going back there. The first one, which I think is brilliant because the comic timing in that is so good. The doctor barges in, he speaks a little bit of Chinese, says, show us a trick. And this is just after Chang has slipped him the poison and he gasps and dies. Like the timing on it is fantastic. And I don't know Chinese. Was Baker actually speaking real Chinese there? Well, I noticed he said ni hao, which at least is hello. 
So okay. there were at least two words of accurate Chinese. I couldn't tell you about the rest. Also, they said it was scorpion venom. I don't know you would die if you ingested it. If you ingest animal poison, doesn't your body just kind of metabolize it or just like kind of kill it? Doesn't have to get into your bloodstream. I thought it actually had to go directly in your bloodstream, but that's another story. The small things. Small <laughs> yes, things. I know. I know. But yes, it was very, very good. The police inspector I found humorous because he just seemed so wonderfully oblivious. He kind of gave me some Chief Wiggum vibes. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> And I already like just the way that Chang, you're right, how Chang and the doctor play off of each other. It's a very good scene. It sets ourselves up where you're thinking, well, this is our big bad. Yeah. Not knowing that there's something beyond that. Despite the yellow face and everything, does a wonderful job. Yes. But it also, Riley, kind of sets us up for the big bad. You don't quite realize it at the time, but talking about the scorpion venom the doctor mentions the tongue of the black scorpion which is clearly a cult and their god weng chiang so that's our first mention coming towards the end of part one and speaking of the end one don't you love it when people are just walking around in sewers and then you think <laughs> about their poor shoes that are then gonna uh, have to get tossed out ugh. and we get the giant rat yes question yes we so the giant rat some of it, they used an actual rat in a miniature sewer as a model, and obviously that looks really good. Where it doesn't is where it's quite clearly Stuart Fell in a giant rat suit. <laughs> Why do I feel like he wore that at the rap party? <laughs> I hope he did. <laughs> Before we move on to part two, we do need to mention one thing, and that is Professor Lightfoot, who we meet for the first time as the coroner at the police station. And he's wonderful from the get-go. He's my favorite character of this entire serial. A hundred percent my favorite character. He's sharp and at the same time, and actually partially because of his sharpness, he lets some things slide. It comes later with Leela and everything, but there's certain things he just takes in stride because he's just like, you know what? It's not worth it. <laughs> but also I think it's because he just has that self-awareness the mindfulness to understand. And we'll get into it more because mm -hmm. that was probably out of, there are a lot of scenes in this serial that I enjoyed, but the scene, which we will talk about between him and Leela eating, mm. that one particularly, but the biggest smile on my face and I, well, we'll get to it. We'll get fully into episode two. Let's get into this giant rat. First off, that is one of the shortest recaps ever on this show. <laughs> yep. Cool. And I know you appreciated that, Julie. <laughs> Absolutely. And obviously, the doctor talks about it guarding something. And I was like, no shit. What else is a giant rat there for? And actually, that's another thing, too, is at the end of the day, the giant rats do nothing. Uh, tell that to Chang's leg. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I thought they were underutilized. Yeah, fair. And I think they were limited by the fact that just a guy in a giant fuzzy rat costume... I don't know what else we want to talk about, but I wanted to talk about one quick thing is I know we talked about dialogue and there is a lot of wonderful dialogue, but there's also a lot of confusing dialogue, as we've mentioned. And one of them in particular was you're a pixelated leprechaun. <laughs> yes, I have no and, idea. <laughs> who says that and when? I didn't note that down. I just okay. definitely wrote it out as a note to myself. Jago says it to Casey. And the seller, right at the beginning, part two. <laughs> Pixelated like, leprechaun. I don't know. I guess pixie, I guess, is what it means. Yeah. Not like pixels yeah. like we're familiar with. So I would assume so. Yeah. Speaking of, he also uses a term called oop zootics. 
Yes. And I had to look that up. I've never mm-hmm. heard of that before. That is apparently a fit of eccentricity or craziness. Never heard it before. All Good right. Lord. I know. <laughs> we need an English to Jago dictionary. So it's in this episode where we first encounter Wang Chiang. So Chang heads down into the bowels of the theater, heads into Wang Chiang's secret lair, and he's been kidnapping women to ease the symptoms that Wang Chiang is experiencing. Oh, but let's be clear, not just any women. Particularly, it is young, plump, high-spirited girls. Yes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. But this leads to something that's really interesting to me, and that's the first ever mention in the show of time agents. Oh. And I mentioned Moffat in my short summary, but he comes back to a few things in this a lot. He loves time agents, made Captain Jack one. Right. He loves the 51st century, where Wang Chiang is from. Specifically, the girl in the fireplace, the scenes on the ship happen in the 51st century. Captain Jack is from the 51st century. I think River Song spends some time there. The backstory of this is something Moffat comes back to in his version of Doctor Who repeatedly. And I've always just found that fascinating. I did a little research into this episode and RTD, there's a quote from him in the Wikipedia article regarding this serial, just talking about feeling embarrassed that other kids who knew he liked the show were talking about the giant rat and how bad it looked. (laughs) (laughs) Of all the things to talk about with this, I know, I know. It's good to know that it looked just as bad on a (laughs) 14-inch CRT screen as it does on a big screen, flat screen today. We need to talk about, because I know we're about to get into some Leela stuff. Can we go ahead and start off in saying that it's pretty clear that Leela is the doctor's muscle? Oh. Like now, that is is her now established role, and I'm absolutely here for it. It's wonderful. And she seems always ready to throw hands, like all the time. In part one, I'm pretty sure we added to the unofficial Leela killing count, and we will add to it later in this story. And one of my favorite things is, I think it's when she's talking to Professor Lightfoot and he's talking about tobacco. And she's like, what's that? There's no tobacco there. And he says, sounds healthy, but rather (laughs) dull. (laughs) (laughs) And that starts up again. I think Professor Lightfoot is my favorite because it goes from him and Leela having a lot of fun conversations, a lot of fun things happening between them. And then when Mr. Jago finally gets connected with Professor Lighthood, I'm like, okay, here we go. This is the pairing I was waiting for. And we already alluded to it, but the scene with Lightfoot and Leela having dinner and she picks up the joints of meat with her bare hands and oh. just starts eating. And Lightfoot at first looks kind of taken aback, but he's too polite to correct her. So he does the most Victorian gentlemanly thing to do and makes her feel welcome by joining her and doing the same thing. So wonderful. It is. That's the scene that brought the biggest smile to my face in the entire serial. One of those little sweet things that Doctor Who oftentimes dips into that I really like. That's just so inconsequential to the story, but it just brings a real big smile to your face. Yeah. So we get talk about the time cabinet. What exactly <laughs> is it? A time cabinet. Not entirely sure. It's just a cabinet. <laughs> It's a cabinet that sends you through time. I mean, it does what it says on the tin. (laughs) Okay, great. We have another thing to think about through this entire show. There's a lot. There's a lot of moving pieces in this entire serial, and it gets rather complicated. Because we then also hear about floating skull with the rattling chains. Yeah, which we learn in watching it that that's just a deterrent from Wang Chiang, an illusion to keep people away from his lair. And, you know, Jago faints because he's an idiot. (laughs) <laughs> and has zero backbone. Zero. 
Yeah. But to your point, there is quite a lot that happens here. You've got the cat and mouse chase between the Doctor and Wang Chiang, which I think is really well shot. Yes. It's got some really good point of view work. And really good music. Yeah, good music. And it's tense. And at the same time, we've got Lightfoot arming himself and ready to take on the Chinese folks that are watching the house. So we've got all these things going on at once. We do have something that I thought was a bit on the nose, and that's the doctor referring to Wang Chiang as our reclusive phantom. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you have like one of those shots underneath the theater, when you see the layer a little bit, it's very, yeah, definitely hits that reference. We end the episode with Lightfoot re-entering the house, having gone to investigate what's going on outside. He's knocked unconscious and Leela goes to investigate, opens the door to the hallway, and she is faced with Mr. Sin. And that takes us into part three. Weren't you just wishing that she was just going to like rear up, run at full sprint and just punt him, just like kick him like across the room? Oh, what you said right there is 100% my thoughts on Chucky. I'm sorry, (laughs) but if you're not able to just punt that doll, then what is wrong with you? Then you deserve to die. Yes. I digress. There are a couple times in this when she comes face to face with this little puppet thing. And each time I'm like, man, I really wanted her to just take it out. Just rip it apart. Rip it apart. Oh, it would have been so glorious. But unfortunately, we don't get that. And we get the doctor yet again whistling to Colonel Boogie's March because he just can't stop doing that. I think this is like the fourth (laughs) serial now that he's done it. Cool. Yes, I am going to notice. I played it in college. Sorry, everyone. Mm. That's why I know it. We also get Leela's amazing gymnastics that take her through the window. Oh, just push. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's so beautiful. It's action figure Leela. Is, <laughs> <laughs> she is just really, really just taking swings, holding knives, going after people. It's wonderful. And it's here that she decides she's going to try and end the entire story early by going after Chang's carriage to try and take him out. Good for you, Leela. Yeah. She likes a more direct route. <laughs> yeah. What's all this talking about? <laughs> also, I adore Lightfoot's reaction. He is upset in the most British way possible in that he is quite put out more than anything else. <laughs> Those darn ruffians attacking yeah. a man in his own home. Did he go and make himself a cup of tea to get over it? Probably. But yes, I had a couple things. So obviously we've got this split with the doctor and the professor being together, Leela off to try to get to Wang Chiang. And when they're down and Chang and Wang Chiang are talking to each other, I had a question of the piece of meat that he was feeding his rat. Was that just a random piece of meat or was that supposed to be a lady? I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. I really hope it's just a random piece of meat because he needs the ladies for himself. And they're kind of emaciated when they come out of his machine. That was my first thought because it was, yeah. But yeah, we hear more about that. He made the rat grow in size and ferocity. He also talks about needing more fresh young donors, at least two girls this time. Kinky. Yeah. (laughs) And let's talk about one of them that Chang has to pick up named Teresa. Teresa says something that I had to rewind several times to understand, but I just want to say it out loud because I have a question at the end of it. But as far as I'm concerned, all I want is a pair of smoked kippers, a cup of rosy, and put me plates up for a few hours. Savvy? Okay, so I tried to translate this on Google Translate, <laughs> but I couldn't find Victorian Lady of the Street or Lady of the Night as a selectable <laughs> language. So, Anthony, do you think you could translate this for me? I get the smoked kippers, I'm assuming that's smoked fish, and a cup of yep. rosy, I'm guessing has a type of tea, but put me plates up for a few Meat. hours? 
Yeah. Wait, it's her feet. Oh, it's the Cockney rhyming slang. Yeah, so Cup uh, of Rosie, Rosie Lee, tea. Uh, okay. Plates, I'm not quite sure exactly how you get to plates from feet. I'm sure someone can tell us, but yes, I would assume that's feet. Okay. Thank you. I feel you, though. The accents and the well, language is definitely not something that I'm used to. That is our second speaking woman there who's not yeah. the regular. Yep. Second and last. And of course, she's immediately hypnotized. I'm glad that the hypnotism wasn't as much used as it could yeah. have been. Like, Leela didn't really go under hypnosis. The doctor didn't go under hypnosis or anything like that, because otherwise I would have probably slammed my head in the wall because yeah. I'm tired of it. But I do have to say that Chang's a bit of an idiot because she swaps herself with the lady and he doesn't notice the hair color change at all. Yeah. Well, you know, all white girls look the same. Also, (laughs) how dare Wang Chiang insult Leela in saying that she has the muscles of a horse? (laughs) How dare you? I don't know. I think it's almost a compliment. I know. know, She's she's... (laughs) well-toned. Yeah. I do want to talk about the doctor calling Wang Chiang a slavering vampire. And what he is doing here is kind of very on point for a vampire, abducting young nubile women and draining their life energy for his own enrichment. That's definitely another little influence in this script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of dig it. Oh, yeah. And we have our Leela escape into the sewers. Yes, we do. We also have. The location filming in the night of the Doctor and Lightfoot on a boat. You can definitely see they spent more money on this than they've spent in a long time. Agreed. And I love it. Oh, yeah. I think we're towards the end of three now. Yes. And of course, we'll move into part four. Obviously, Leela's trying to escape. She's getting caught by the rat. She screams a little. And luckily, the Doctor has a clear shot. But that's where we get our cliffhanger. Like the giant Mm -hmm. elephant gun thing? Yep. And on to part four. I'm a little upset because there's a couple scenarios or just times when I really wish Leela got out of it herself. Mm. I know it's not realistic that it's going to happen every single time. But the biggest reason why I'm mad at this one is because she's not saved by cleverness. She's saved by someone with a gun. Yeah, and it's like she's a warrior, so find a way to have her fight off the wee beastie herself. And I understand maybe not her being able to kill it because, you know, it is much bigger and she didn't have a weapon. But to at least be able to get past it, as a warrior, you should be able to do that. And I actually have a number of objections to how they handle Leela here because... The clothes they've put her oh, oh, in okay, okay. are Sorry. virtually see-through at this oh, point right, as see, well. All right, all right. <laughs> I was going to bring this up and I was going to say playfully, and you were setting me up very well because you brought up Jamie. And I will point out that on our podcast, we have sexualized Jamie and multiple <laughs> men for having no shirts on. So I just need to state that the conclusion of Leela's escape from the rodent of unusual size, provided us with something that I found very visually pleasing, and probably a lot of other men. I mean, and that's I all. And that's it. all I will. All right, and that's all I will say about that. And I, you know, uh, the human form is a wonderful thing. That is all. I won't deny that Louise Jameson was extremely good looking and yes, very appealing. But I think it goes back to characterization here. If you're going to kind of really 
denigrate her character by not having her be able to get past this giant rat, despite supposedly being a very, very skilled warrior. Don't also then objectify her. It just feels like a lot to do to her at once that kind of goes against the idea that this is a strong, bold character. I was going to say, but also at the same time, it makes sense because since she had had to change clothes first with the other woman, obviously she would have had to like get out of the current clothes that she had. So there's like a lot of things that detail wise, it's something that you can't really get past unless you do something along the lines of, again, like letting her actually get out of the situation herself because that would have helped. But But come on, costume department, make them a bit thicker. It's funny you say that also, because I oftentimes, as I try to find quotes from the show to use out of the beginning of our show, I look up the transcripts for serials. And sometimes these transcripts include descriptions of what's going on. Oh. And this is the scene previous, but I don't know why it's described this way, but they say specifically, laboratory, Leela is now down to her ample Victorian underwear. Now, <laughs> ample? Do we need to add that description to it? Could we just say down to her Victorian underwear, maybe? I don't know. For a second, I thought I was reading some sort of fan fiction, but go ahead. Yes, and now we move on. But we do have Lightfoot being nice enough to get her new things. Yes. And I love and hate the reaction to it. Because she's not from this world and everything, she wouldn't have an opportunity to dress up like that. So her wanting to feel like she's wearing something appropriate is good. But also at the same time, it had to be like, oh, you look so nice in this dress. I'm like, oh, why did we give her a dress? Yeah, I see where you're coming from, Julie. Separately, I did notice when Lightfoot gives her the clothes and she goes to start to change and he sends her upstairs and says, Mrs. Hudson will help you change. He has a Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> Could we get more Sherlock Holmes here? Yep, that's fair. Absolutely fair. And there's a couple things going on, more Wang Shiang nonsense, which we just come to realize that he's just batshit insane. We'll talk about it at the end, but he is definitely going to deserve quite a few points oh, on the camp count, I think. A hundred percent. So he sends his people to try and get the cabinet. And he sends Mr. Sin in with the laundry. And I really love that because we actually get kind of a setup for that before when the doctor's drawing on that tablecloth and Lightfoot takes the tablecloth and puts it in the laundry basket. So we've seen the laundry basket a few episodes earlier. So that's not coming out of nowhere. And then we see a couple of the Chinese guys carry in a new laundry basket, take the old one out. And of course, Mr. Sin is in the new one that's brought in. So when the doctor tells Lightfoot to bolt the door and arm himself, the threat is already inside. And just the way Holmes plans this out is so intricate and meticulous and really well done. But then we get back to the theater and... <laughs> and the singing. The singing. But then there's Jago calling Lila window dressing. <laughs> right yeah. and then we get on to the magic tricks hang on before that uh, casey says the doctor doesn't look like a detective he looks exactly like the jeremy brett sherlock holmes right <laughs> of course he looks like a detective anyway oh, and, and a little bit of trivia at the theater the conductor that was deadly simpson <gasps> nice i know I need to go back and watch it. I found that by just reading up on it. I was like, oh man, I got to see Dudley in action. Dudders. Dudders cameo. Yeah, I got to get to that cameo. So we have the singing. Chang's up there. He's going to do his magic trick. And 
And I don't know why. It's just one of those things that you think it's a very clever plan, but really it's like they're just going to just shoot them in broad daylight they in front of everybody. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love the little quip Chang makes about killing, I'd know what it was, 17 peasants while learning yes, the trick. Yeah. <laughs> oh. 17 peasants. Oh I my mean, God. this story is quite funny. There's a lot oh, of humor yeah. here. We've talked about Jago's lines and this and that. But also, I mean, the doctor really throws out some really good quips, like really good. It's not just that. But once we actually get further into the magic scene and Chang brings him down to put him in the box, turns the box around and the doctor absolutely takes the piss by just walking out of the cabinet on stage. (laughs) Seen by the entire audience. That confused me so much. I was just, and then he comes back. Yeah, and is on stage to assist, grinning manically, holding a sword for Chang. It's Brilliant. I feel like that part was not scripted, and I feel that was Tom Baker, Tom Baker. just yeah. taking the basement. Yeah. It's hard for me to think that they wrote all of that in. Yeah. But poor Casey. I am so yeah. sad about Casey because he didn't do anything wrong. No, he didn't. R.I.P. Casey. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. The one thing we haven't mentioned, and it's just important from a plot perspective, is by this stage, Wang Chiang has told Chang, you're done. You failed me too many times. Get out of here. All of this is kind of Chang's last ditch, last hurrah. So when he does his runner after Casey falls out, it's kind of set up to him heading towards his end. And it's almost sad as they corner him. Jago shows up, distracts the doctor because, of course, Jago blusters in. And Chang slips off into the sewer where the giant rat is waiting for him. And that scream he lets out is blood curdling. <laughs> oh boy. So we end the episode with Wang Chiang having left the theatre. He's taken his life force draining device with him. And we find out from the doctor the more Wang Chiang tries to heal himself, the more deformed he becomes. And we end the episode with Wang Chiang leaving Lightfoot's residence on his carriage with the cabinet, cackling. Cackling. It's such a good cackle, too. Howling with laughter. He is completely batshit insane. And that's that cliffhanger. (laughs) And that takes us to part five. Let's go. I believe the part here is like in the very first scene is that the doctor asks Leela to get Lightfoot a drink and he's like, in a glass, in a glass. (laughs) (laughs) She just goes to hand him the whole decanter. I mean, maybe that's what Lightfoot needs. Yeah, maybe. He suffered two home invasions. Give him that brandy. He deserves it. What I find so weird is they have been so willing to kill so many people, but not the professor. Don't get me wrong. I love the professor. I don't want him dead, but I just find it surprising that they didn't kill him. No, that's a good point. But then we uh, move on from that scene and we get to see the House of the Dragon. And that is a really, really nice set. Once again, where the money went. And, And of course, I don't know about either of you, but that gave me tremendous memories of Big Trouble in Little China. Which, speaking about television or film done either by the English or Americans, the difference is is that (laughs) Big Trouble in Little China is an American film that actually is very respectful of Chinese characters and Chinese culture, and it's actually very, very good. I mean, this is very good too, but it's interesting how they were able to handle all those things, talk about it, show it, and it's still, I don't think it's problematic to this day, even though it came out in the 80s. I would agree. I would also think there's probably a 
strange as it may sound, a little bit more racial sensitivity in the US towards people of Asian origin than in the UK. I think you probably had more people with that kind of ethnic background than we did in the 1970s and 1980s. I'm not trying to make excuses, but no, I no. think that might be why we see a little bit of a discrepancy. One thing I do want to say about that set is that set is so iconic. When The Talons of Wang Chiang was released on VHS, and it was one of the earliest ones released, the cover was that dragon with Wang Chiang in front of it. And that was all that was on the cover. I mean, it solved the story. And I will say it's not one I had on VHS. I didn't really get to see this one <gasps> until it was 16, 17. So yes, I know Julie Gasp. <laughs> oh. 16, I think I was. Okay, so we have some plot things going on, right? Wang Chiang finds out that they didn't get the bag, which they're dumb. Yep. yep. And it right. has the lattice they need to activate the time cabinet. Idiots. But then we have Leela and the doctor trying to find out what's going on. And we have a callback to, I think, the second doctor and Jamie when the doctor is telling Leela to be quiet. And then he's the one who like falls and knocks something over. <laughs> yeah, that's very, yeah. Speaking of that, oh, there's a great part here in this episode or this part of the serial where I really enjoyed that Leela has the line where she says that you ask me so that you can tell me. Yes, yes. And I it's that. great because it shows that she isn't just muscle. She isn't just fierce warriors. Now she's starting to understand how the doctor operates and plays people a bit. And so that's really good because now it's showing that she is gaining some perspective and the ability to know him better so that she probably won't be as necessarily as influenced by him. And if this were an episode of Rick and Morty, there'd be a comment about her figuring out the tropes of the show and becoming self-aware as a character. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot in this episode I love. There's a lot of background and lots of small little things. Firstly, we have the Doctor saying, elementary, my dear Lightfoot. Love <laughs> that. We have the background on Mr. Sin. Oh, which, which is disturbing and weird, but crazy and fun. Yeah, it's a bit of an exposition dump because it tells us a bit more of the world building of the 51st century and how Mr. Sin was a, a toy that went wrong and nearly caused World War VI. That's one hell of a toy. I know. Bonkers. The other thing I noticed when Wang Chiang starts raging at his people for leaving the bag behind. He makes one of them, who's called Lee, poison himself. And the poor guy is wearing a wedding ring too. So again, if this were Austin Powers, there would be a, <laughs> a, little, uh, a little vignette to his wife and kids at home getting the news that he was yep. he was sadly poisoned with scorpion venom. I thought you were also going to say that when Chang lets out his blood curling scream in the sewer as they walk away, him saying, help, I'm not dead. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Just this rat has gnawed off my leg. I'm just very badly injured. <laughs> Which is where we find him in the opium den. And of oh, course he's in an opium den. That's a perfect talking point. And I know we don't want to get back to it because we talked about it at the very front, but I feel like we can't just overlook this. There's a lot there. And it's interesting how that can be seen as a problematic portrayal. But as we talked about the whitewashing of history and like just overlooking things, in case I'm not going to go into the history of how opium was used, um, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> but everyone knows. So I think it's fine and accurate to show that. And also, he's not an addict. I think his goddamn yeah. leg got gnawed off by a rat. And he's like, well, I need a painkiller, you know, and I'm also a criminal. So I'm not going to go to a doctor. If I can find opium, I'm going to use it. I'm dying anyway. It also ties into the rather complicated 
history and kind of less taught history that the British had with China and oh. opium where Oh no that's what I was referring to. Yeah. <laughs> I can give you my potted history where we went to China and said you're going to buy our opium and they said, "Oh no thank you. I don't think we want our people to be entirely hooked on this drug." And we said, "Okay, we're going to go to war with you." Somehow we win that war. We force them to buy our opium and they say, "Okay, anything else you want?" And we go, "Yeah, Hong Kong please actually." <laughs> <laughs> That's the opium war. <laughs> so without really touching on it, it's kind of our fault that Chang is smoking opium. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to like discontinue what we're talking about, Chang, but we also get finally Lightfoot and Jago pairing up together. Yes. And it's glorious. It's not until about halfway through part five, and yet they are considered to be one of Holmes's best double acts, to the point where they actually considered a television spin-off with the two of them in the seventies oh oh that my. didn't get made. But big guess finish. What? Big finish. Big finish did something like fourteen seasons of Jago and Lightfoot. Fourteen seasons. They're actually very good. I could believe it. Fourteen seasons. And they even do a Jago and Lightfoot and Strax. Oh, that sounds oh, really good. Oh. Which is just as glorious as you would expect. <laughs> With my knowledge of 70s television history and how, you know, the type of productions that were made, when you said they were going to do a spinoff, I was really hoping you were going to say they were going to do the Jago and Lightfoot Variety Hour. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. I love them because they go off to follow the Chinese and then immediately get captured by them. They are oh, yeah. kind of terrible at sleuthing. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then the interactions are really, really funny when Lightfoot's not going to give anything away and he says, do with us what you want. And Jago's like, steady on, old chap. Oh, and then when they get in the dumb waiter together. Yes. And immediately get captured as soon as they come out of it. They are brilliant. Oh. All right. We are getting towards the end and... We have the Doctor and Leela in Lightfoot's house, having found that they're gone. Leela is trying out a few things that could be used as weapons. She's trying to use the golf club as a spear. And from behind her, Wang Chiang tries to drug her from the window using Rehypnol, but has to come into the room to get her. And... Oh, then the reveal. The yes. Phantom of the Opera reveal. Yeah. His face is really well done. Yeah, yeah. it really is. I think is. that's some good makeup. It is. Agreed. And I do wonder if they made the actor playing him wear that underneath the whole time, oh, Michael I Spice. Not. I don't think so. I hope not. That would have been <laughs> uncomfortable. It certainly would have been. All right, part six. Oh boy, it's been a while since we've done a six-parter, guys. I know, I know, <laughs> it's a marathon. Oh, we do have one other thing I wanted to touch on in part five, and that's just that little conversation between the Doctor and Leela where he says that he should have taken her to Agincourt. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, she's always up for a scrap, man. She wants to get into a fight. I will tell you right now, I am starting to develop feelings for Leela <laughs> of the Jamie variety. That oh, Julia. Wow. Yeah, so just wanted to throw that out there. So we'll just see how that goes. But Wow. Riley gets his first Doctor Who crush of uh, Classic Who. Yeah. Of Classic Who. Okay. Yeah, well, okay. we'll be clear on that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Part six, you arrogant jackanapes. Let's do it. Speaking of part six, Riley, your girl gets dragged off. Well, no. I mean, well, the doctor shows up. And then he has that wonderful Bugs Bunny routine where he sits down at the table, doesn't realize that Wang Chiang is sitting right next to him. And then he just casually brushes it off like, oh. Oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, basically. 
<laughs> I actually really like the two of them facing off against each other because Wang Chang's over-the-top intensity balances really well against the Doctor's flippancy. Yeah, his casualness. Yeah. Yeah, it goes so well. Oh, you let yourself in. That's good. We were expecting you. <laughs> <laughs> we were expecting you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the way the doctor can go from so flippant to being quite serious. He's got all the negotiating power because the lattice is unique. It can't be replaced. So he smashes it. That time cabinet becomes useless. Wang Chiang is trapped. So when he says, Jago and Lightfoot must be released and I'm coming with you to the theater, he can really force that point. I love it. It's also very clever of him because he gets them to leave Leela, which is smart in two yes. ways. One, it makes her safe because now she's no longer in danger because they've all left. Two, it allows her time to wake up and then maybe come back and do a sneak attack. So very clever. We get a jelly baby. Oh. We do. So I'll throw that out there. The doctor gets more like actual, like regular doctor lines, like never trust a man with dirty fingernails. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely at that point, I was sitting there with Leela. I was like, you better follow, better yeah. be following. Otherwise, I was going to be really mad. There are a couple of funny things. I re Well, not funny, but there are a couple of things I really liked in this. One of which was funny, which was the doctor on entering the house of the dragon says, I'll have the bird's nest soup. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a themed Chinese restaurant. So good flippancy there. I also really like Jago's moment of vulnerability when he's talking to Lightfoot. And for all his bluster, he admits to Lightfoot that he's not particularly brave. It's like you've got these two guys who are very quickly becoming friends. And one of them, who is kind of a ridiculous character, is opening up and letting some of that facade drop and showing who he is underneath. I really like that. Now we have the doctor calling Wang Chiang out on his shit. Yes. Of simple, old-fashioned cannibalism. <laughs> wonderful and then we find out that his name was magnus greel yes <laughs> i like magnus but yes the first man to travel through time and believes that his experiments were a success he killed a hundred thousand people in the name of science yeah Ugh. and mutilated himself insane he's Yes. I mean, it's a fascinating concept when you think about it. Like, as you said, Anthony, the world building it provides the 51st century sounds completely batshit insane. Peking homunculus, Reykjavik being like the, a main battle yeah. location <laughs> in World War. I don't know, like, don't want to go into geopolitics with anybody, but that's a hell of a thing. But uh, <laughs> that is just crazy. But, you know, that's wonderful because it gets your imagination going. You try to fill in the pieces. You're trying to figure out, like, how the hell could that work? And that's a fun exercise. The name Magnus Greel is interesting. The fact that he's obviously not a Chinese god, but parading around as such in order to gain power it's clever. It's a fun idea, especially the going back to the whole advanced technology is like, if you don't understand it, it's basically magic. Da, 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 da. We're all familiar with that. It works really well. It seems wacky and silly, but it works. And I can't think of a better example of how to describe Doctor Who than that. And it just gets more and more insane as this episode goes on, because as we get into that final fight... Right, we've got Leela leaping <laughs> upon Greel. <laughs> He's going to drain her. She calls him Bentface. Oh, <laughs> Bentface. And then we get the iconic, let the talons of Wang Chiang shred your flesh. It's yeah. so campy. It's brilliant. 
Very cute. And Sin, sitting in the dragon, just snorting away, having the best time just shooting at anyone and anything. It's bonkers. It really, it really is. It's absolute bonkers. We get Robert Holmes going back to his old tricks. You think about the arc in space where you had the thing in part one that descended from the ceiling and couldn't shoot at two objects at once. The dragon has the same issue. Right. And they do the same thing with distracting it. And then Leela does that in order to... Get- to get the gun and then it's like well I don't even I've never shot one before (laughs) and I adore Leela but I'm like you should be able to tell how to aim different types of weapons and you should know aiming at a floor is not going to (laughs) work we've seen her fire crossbows and we've seen her fire energy weapons in the face of evil so that is a miss on Leela's character for me but yeah the whole thing is just yeah the other thing is also when Leela couldn't take on the puppet at the very end and the doctor had to be the one to take out the puppet. I was like, come on, give Leela something. Let's also talk about the end of Greel because he goes to shoot Leela and the doctor just grabs him and pushes him into the device where he dies. I mean, the doctor kills him. Yes. Like yes. flat out kills Greel. Let's point out that he is able to foil him by convincing Mr. Sin that if he's able to go into the time cabinet, it will actually kill all of everyone around. So Mr. Sin's looking out for Mr. Sin. And yes. and in the snorting, like, <sighs> oh, that is really uncomfortable. Yes, that is, it is. That is mm, the unsettling. cerebral cortex of a pig and it's showing up. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. All right, so once Sin's been taken out and Greel's been taken out, the Doctor smashes the lattice, bringing the Zygma experiment to an end. And he wants to go find the Muffin Man. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love how we then cut to Lightfoot teaching Leela about tea. Ugh, you British and your tea. Also, dictating how ladies are supposed to take their tea. But the whole thing is making fun of it because Leela's asking why and the answer is well, just how you do. And there's a level of ridiculousness to it that this is commenting on. I think Mm -hmm. it's really funny. I know. It just makes me sad that Lightfoot didn't realize that. Well, he's Victorian. Yeah, but it's Lightfoot. I like him. (laughs) (laughs) I love how unfazed Jago is when the TARDIS dematerializes. And his little comment, I dare say the great Lee Sen Chang himself would have appreciated that. He's already turning Chang into a legend as we cut to his poster behind the TARDIS and then the credits roll. Well, remember, he wants to show that like layer. Yes, we didn't even talk about that. He's going to sell tours of the layer of the Phantom. I forget when that was, part four maybe, but yes, he's a bit of a con man. A bit? Oh, yeah. 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 All right. So before we score this one, I have to ask between the giant rat, Mr. Sin and Wang Chiang slash Magnus Greel and then anything else, maybe even the, the old crone. How many camp count points does this get? I'm only willing to give points for Griel slash Wang Chiang. I don't think any of the other ones would count as campy to me personally, but I will give a lot for Wang Chiang. I will give him <laughs> I will give him five. I'm actually gonna overrule you. Oh, oh well a okay. change. I don't normally do this, but I feel like the giant rat deserves a point. I feel very strongly on that. Overrule me, you arrogant <laughs> jackanape. I know. How dare you? I know. I'm okay. I'm okay with doing six in total for this story. All right. Six, which ironically is also what we gave to the last season finale, The Seeds of Doom. So that's about out. right. No, that, yeah, that's yeah. about yeah, right. Because he was also a crazy, crazy man. Yep. <laughs> Let's go ahead and rate this one. And Julie, you get to go first. 
obviously we talked about the elephant in the room, so I don't really want to to harp on that too much because that's not how I'm going to address this story from a pointing perspective. But it's still not one of my favorites. It is a bit long. There's some filler. Not to say that I don't enjoy it, but while Leela had a lot of things to do, they cut her off before she could really be a badass and do what she needed to do in a couple different places, and I didn't enjoy that aspect of it. Obviously, you hear that I love Professor Lightfoot and that Jago grew on me after a while. Obviously, it's very Sherlockian or Holmesian, I guess is the better way of putting it. I just wanted to go a little crazy on the other end there. And the rats were not well realized. And I personally didn't really like the purpose that they served, but, you know, they argue with me about Chang. So I am going to give this eight creepy pig puppets out of ten. <laughs> okay. Riley, let's hear yours. I can separate myself from the difficulties that modern audiences would have with this serial, but I can understand if others cannot. So I just will go and put that out there. I really enjoyed this. Everything looks really good, obviously outside of the rat, but I'm willing to overlook that. This is just a wild and fun serial. Leela's really coming on strong. The doctor is nailing it with his bugs, but he went even more than ever before. It's fun. It's clever. I would say maybe it could have been trimmed down to five episodes, but that's about it. It's great plot, great characters, wonderful sets, lots of humor. I really did enjoy this one. So I'm going to give this one nine young, plump, high-spirited girls out of ten. Wow. Well, I have to be honest. I think I would be in agreement with Riley. There's a lot to like here. It is well scripted. The dialogue has some real zingers. I think Tom Baker and Louise Jameson are on fire on this. Not literally, of course. I think... Jago and Lightfoot, what a pairing. There's some wonderful camp, and I kind of love all the tropes it goes for. However, I'm not sure I'm quite able to let the elephant in the room drop quite as easily as the two of you. There was an element of this that made me kind of uncomfortable watching it, and I would say it did impact my enjoyment. So I think if I could divorce that from it, I probably would be in line with Riley and give this a nine. But I think, in all honesty, this probably knocks maybe a point and a half off of it for me. So I think I'm going to have to go for seven and a half wizened old crones getting excited <laughs> about a body in the river out of 10, <laughs> which gives us a story average of 8.17, which it's not the best we've had, but I think that's a solid showing for this. And where that fits with the rest of the season, you're going to have to wait till next episode to find out when we do our season retrospective. Although those of you who are really keen could go back through the other five episodes <laughs> and figure it out. I'll leave that up to you if you want to spend your time doing that. All right. As mentioned, we will be back next episode for our season 14 retrospective. Thank you, as always, for listening to us ramble on about the talents of Wang Chiang. And of course, as always, we will be back next time, so thank you and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Simple Old Fashioned Cannibalism, was recorded on Monday, the 4th of December, 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at atwatches4d, and you can also email us at watches4d at gmail.com. 
If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, it's perfectly okay to appreciate the good things about a story while also calling out the problematic.